0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast.
2: Fascinating
0: historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. With the climate crisis, war in Ukraine, a recent pandemic and the rise of AI, it can feel like there's more to be fearful of today than ever before. But according to historian Robert Peckham... Human society has always been shaped by fear, and not always in the ways you might expect. I spoke to him to find out more. Thank you so much for joining us on the History Extra podcast, Robert. So you've got a new book out called Fear, An Alternative History of the World. And the book looks at how fear has shaped history from the 14th century pretty much to the present day. So to start us off, what made you personally start thinking about the impact of fear on global events?
3: I guess there were many routes into this book uh, and my interest in fear. The first is I'm a historian of epidemics and pandemics. And what I became interested in is panicked responses to epidemics as being kind of central to government disease prevention programs. So panic as a sort of behavior that stems from fear became uh, an academic interest. On top of that, I lived through, like all of us, I've lived through certain fearful moments. And, um, I begin actually the book with a, a description of me backpacking through Pakistan and Afghanistan when I was a student and I got caught up in a terrorist attack. And I guess that visceral experience of fear and, you know, emotion and panic set in motion a sort of an intellectual interest in what, what that experience was. And I think linked to that, which is what I try and to do in the book, which links a kind of intellectual history of fear with a more experiential narrative, focus on people and events. How my little experience of fear was part of a very much bigger geopolitical uh, history, you know, involving Britain, America, conflicts in in the Asian subcontinent. And then of course, I was an academic head of the Department of History at the University of Hong Kong during a very difficult time with pro-democracy protests that were then quashed by the government. Um, And I include a graffiti there, Freedom From Fear, which I found very poignant, written on a bus shelter. So that experience of being a historian in a very trying political environment was also, I guess, one inspiration for this book on fear.
0: I wonder if you could tell us a tiny bit more about that experience of yours, as you say, in Pakistan and Afghanistan, and some of the questions that it raised for you about fear and how humans react to fear.
3: This gets to the heart of the book's main themes. I'm interested in how fear has been used as a coercive tool, but I'm also interested in how fear is a generative uh, force. In other words, fear smashes communities, but it also helps to build new ones. And so, if you share fear with other people, you actually there's a there's a sort of sociality linked to that fear that is kind of community building. So you feel very close to the people who've experienced the same fear as you. And I was in a bust. And um, one of the things I talk a little bit about, about the sense of sort of isolation in a panicking crowd, but then a sense that you're actually part of something bigger than you. So this idea of fear as both a, a very destructive force, but something that can also be harnessed to produce new kinds of community. And then the second thing that I try to explore a little bit in the book is the relationship between individual fears, you know, phobias and fears that we may have, and bigger collective fears. And I think that uh, perhaps where my book differ from many other approaches to fear that tend to treat political fears uh, separately from the individual fears that we, we all have.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because I'd like to think, you know, it'd be lovely to live in a world in which no one lived in fear. But your book has really complicated this question for me, because... It's made me rethink that perhaps fear can be a galvanising force and can be a force for change and for good. Is that how you feel about it? I'm
3: so glad you asked that. I think it's a really, really important issue that you've raised. Yes, I think it can be. And I go back to my own experience of fear all those years ago in eastern Afghanistan, where paradoxically fear that sort of crushed you and you caught up in a panicking crowd also is this incredible force that made you more alive more aware of the value of life because it's a moment something threatened and that you face a, a risk you become more alive and aware of the, of the of the extraordinary privilege you have of being alive you know that may be one way of thinking about why fear features so importantly in literature and film and in other you know forms of creative production is that In creating this fear, they heighten our awareness of things. Our perceptions are heightened. And so, you know, that is part of the story.
1: So fear isn't going away, and fear can be used helpfully. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging
0: Your book is really timely. It feels like there's a lot to be afraid of in our modern world. As you mentioned, pandemics recently, climate crisis, economic and political instability. But is that us or me being kind of self-involved? Have societies always been fearful essentially?
3: So societies have always been fearful. And one of the things that I'm trying to do is to understand fear, not only as a neurophysiological process, but as a cultural uh, phenomenon. So we inherit ideas about fear. We're taught ideas about how we fear. And so understanding history and how our fears have been shaped gets us one step closer to being able to modify those fears. So while we've always been fearful, I do think that certain forces are at work that means that our fears are are quite different. There are echoes of earlier fears, which I trace in the book, for example, technology, from the printing press, in fact, from the invention of writing, to the telegraph system, the industrial revolution to the internet and AI now, all these fears. But I think now in this digital connected world, a new set of fears have have emerged. So we've always been fearful, but we are confronting a world where technology and different forms of interaction are producing these fears that we kind of all feel quite acutely, I think, at this moment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You say in the book that we have always been fearful, but you have chosen to start the book in the 14th century. Why is that a particularly interesting moment to start this story of fear?
3: That's an excellent question, because the fear one could track right through history, perhaps even to prehistory. I begin in the 14th century because Europe experienced this incredible traumatic experience, which is a pandemic, and the psychological, political, economic, social shock that it produced, I argue, put fear up for grabs in a way. In other words, that the Catholic Church's management of fear became problematic. And then we see the emergence of centralizing European states who build fear into the mechanisms of their government. And then, of course, what happens is the globalisation of that politics as Europeans begin to carve out global dominions and empires and colonising. So the exportation of a sort of politics that has come out of a particular experience of fear is then exported globally. And that's an interesting time when people begin to think about what fear is and how it's used and misused. So I talk a little bit about, you know, whether it's Shakespeare, Cervantes, Montaigne, Uh, These writers from the late 15th, 16th and early 17th century who become interested in thinking about what fear is, both on a personal level, but also fear as a political tool. And that's where we start to get a vocabulary of fear and panic that starts to be kind of more defined, pinned down, um, whereas earlier it's, it's kind of more fluid. So that's a pivotal moment for me because part of my story is the globalisation of this fear.
0: Something I did want to ask you, you essentially begin the book and end the book with a pandemic, and that is obviously your area of expertise or one of them coming into this. When we did see the COVID pandemic, a lot of talk drew parallels with the Black Death in the medieval era. Do you think that those parallels are useful? And looking at it through your lens of fear, what would you kind of add to that picture?
3: I don't think drawing an analogy between COVID and the Black Death is very helpful. But on the other hand, what I am interested in, a historian who's thought a lot about responses to pandemics, are the ways in which the fear of disease becomes quickly entangled with other kinds of fears to an extent that they're very hard to to prise apart. So when one's talking about a disease, one's actually talking about a whole range of other fears. And those other fears can be you know, existential fears, but they can be very grounded fears, economic fears, worries about social disintegration. So I think part of the story that I'm telling in the book is how fears become entangled. And I draw this analogy with how technology develops in a recombinatory form. So you don't get a technology that then gives away to more advanced technology. But there's a process by which one technology recombines with another technology and fear and power i see is working in a similar way so one kind of fear hooks onto another kind of fear and you have a sort of this composite complex coalescence of fears and so of course that is very very problematic for governments to tackle because a public health issue is always much more than a public health issue and so that's where i think there is an analogy with earlier pandemics, where the issue wasn't only the issue of bubonic plague, it was a host of other kinds of issues that fed into that fear. I think with COVID, we see see the same things. And where I was living for a great part of the pandemic, which is China, you had a pro-democracy protest movement in 2019, 2020. uh, And then you had a pandemic that overlapped with that. And the degrees to which the sort of politics of the pandemic and the politics of the pro-democracy, anti-democracy conflict merged. I think it's very indicative of the kinds of ways in which, um, you know, diseases are highly political events.
0: I wonder if we could talk a bit more about the relationship between fear and power. Could you give us some examples of regimes or perhaps individuals who, who've who weaponised fear to their advantage?
3: I think that one assumption would be, if you ask most people how fear has been used at all, they'll think of dictatorial regimes, tyrants, you know, who use fear in a sort of repressive way to extend their authority or consolidate their authority. So, you know, from absolute monarchs through to the dictators of the 20th and indeed the 21st century, but I'm also sort of interested in the way in which fear can be harnessed as a sort of what I call a generative tool that is a, a means of f- forcing change. And so the examples that I look at are revolutionary France. I look at the abolitionist movement, anti-slavery movement. And one could take, for example, climate change activists or environmental activists who are using fear as a, as a sort of motivational force and as a way of sort of building a movement Uh, That can affect change, and of course, that's a very, very fine balance. Because if you push fear too far, the motivational benefits disappear, and it becomes, uh, you know, a a route to apathy. Because people kind of say, "Well, what can we do? You know, the earth is going to be destroyed anyway." So, in terms of fear as a tool, it's a dangerous tool because if overused, it backfires. And many of the stories, whether it's coercive fear. Um, that ends up bringing the downfall uh, of the regimes that use it, or progressive movements. There's the same dynamics, in a sense, involved. And I'm interested in the relationship between the coercive and the generative.
0: I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about those two examples you mentioned there, of revolutionary France and also the abolition movement, and how they used fear as a catalyst for social change.
3: Well, the abolitionist movement is interesting because, obviously... In order to move the public to take action, you know, fear is a very obvious means, in this case, terror, the the horrifying realities of slavery as a means of of moving people to take action to stop it. I focus quite a lot on on that, that experience and the ways in which it can backfire by, in the end, sort of indulging in an empathetic approach that doesn't actually maybe affect change, but is a sort of an experience and one might have, a fear. And this idea that actually fear is something that people can enjoy. Um, you know, after all, people go to movies and they enjoy being fearful. This line between fear as an experience that can be sort of gratifying and fear as an experience that can actually move you to change something that is horrific. And I think it's the same for climate change. The sort of disaster movie uh, aesthetics that sort of lurks behind some climate change campaigning which is perfectly understandable because we're confronted by a really important, real challenge. But the question is, how do we move people? Uh, And is that that an effective way of moving people?
1: I
0: wonder if I could circle back to something you said earlier. You use the term, I think, the globalization of European fears. I wonder if you could explain what you mean by that and what you see that process as, as being?
3: What I sort of am interested in is how a system of governance, a sort of military system, a system for managing citizens that is developed during this very, very violent period in European history is then exported uh, overseas and becomes a means of establishing, you know, regimes there. And fear is one aspect of governance that it starts to be rationalised and i think that's a sort of key difference that people are actually thinking and you know shakespeare's uh, uh very insightful about how this works and how how fear works on the level of power and individual fears but it's it's the exploitation of those systems that underpin power in the new world and elsewhere and the ways in which fear is rationalized as a tool that i'm interested in but you know it, when it comes to European colonization, part of one chapter's looks at the Philippines, which were, you know, annexed by Spain. And I look at sort of how panic erupts there around a cholera epidemic. And that's sort of a way of thinking about the sort of misunderstandings and the different kinds of fears that converge and create this very, very difficult, uh, violent sort of eruption.
0: And the Philippines example is a good example, isn't it, of how fear and misunderstanding can breed violence and can fuel violence. Are there any points in history where fear has actually dissuaded people from violence or de-escalated violence?
3: I think it does. It crushes people. I mean, there are lots of examples of regimes that... Survive for a very, very long time, and we can name a few today by using fear as a highly effective tool for crushing people in the in a way that prevents them articulating resistance or or rising up so I think that that's part of the story so fear can be a galvanizing catalyzing force, but it can also be a force that sort of keeps people down and prevents them from acting and so part of the story is uh, you know this the kinds of behaviors that fear Induces and panic is one of them. And panic, I'm kind of interested in the nineteenth century because it's been it's been one of the most theorized aspects of fear. So people are writing books about fear, and they link fear particularly to new, you know, social realities of urban living, industrialization. That I think is one one behavior aspect of fear that I think is very topical today, and it has this kind of interested history back to this incredible change that happens in the 19th century where more people start living in cities and where working environments change and where the whole economic system um, changes. And we live in the aftermath of that.
0: It strikes me that quite a lot of the instances of outbreaks of fear, if you can call them that in your book, are linked to change, as you say, industrialization, colonization. I mean, pandemics change in in a way, in a kind of dramatic and terrible way. Do you think that that's fair? Is change quite often at the heart of the, these fears?
3: Yes, although history is change. Which I'm not r- trying to write a greatest hit of crisis. It's not, a, it's not you know, staggering from one crisis to the next. So it's looking at fear as something that is very much central to history, and one of the things that frustrated me is when I started focusing on fear, is how little has been written about it. Although it's pervasive, because it is so pervasive that we kind of hardly notice it. It's so taken for granted that fear is there in one form or another. So if you you know, read a history of revolution, it'll be full of terror and fear, but weirdly untheorized or kind of like little studied, it will be part of what I call the background music. It's the terrifying soundtrack to, to historical events, rather than being the thing that one studies. So I was interested in turning that optics round, which is why I call this an alternative history of the world, because it's seeing the background as the foreground. So what I'm not trying to do is to, to argue that there are these crisis moments where fear is all defined, and the fear is pervasive. And what I'm trying to show that it's shaped our political world, but key, I think, it shaped our social and economic systems. And I sort of touch on that when when it comes to slavery and the industrial revolution and the aftermath of that. We're living in a world where fear has made our economic system. And the challenge we have is to rid that system of this inheritance of fear, which is a very difficult thing to do. My book is future-looking in that it really physicians' history is a really important instrument of self-examination, bringing new perspectives so we start to understand the fears that we're caught up with and we can modify those fears. So in that sense, it's a, it's a big self-help book in one sense.
0: I like the idea because historians are quite often reticent to talk about the future. But If we are to take this as a big (laughs) and the present, but if we are to take this as a big self-help book, what lessons should we be learning from experiences of fear in the past?
3: First of all, I'd say that you know I share many historians' worries about sort of a presentist approach, where history just a sort of backdrop to thinking about now, and the sort of otherness of history disappears. And of course. When we're looking at, you know, fourteenth century, fifteenth century, it's it's a different world that we're looking at, and we have to understand it, it on its own terms. So, having said that, having said that, I think that what history can do, we tend to think that we're living in this exceptional moment when our fears are exceptional, and that it's the most fearful time in history. And I think a more sober analysis that understands that a lot of our fears have this prehistory. So fears of our societal breakdown in the face of urbanisation that happens in the 19th century, of technology, of new work practices, of globalisation, all of these have antecedents. So once we start to understand that our fears exist in this larger context, I think we bring a new perspective to bear on those fears. And also we are able to manage them better. If we understand that fears are culturally acquired, we're not innately built to fear these things. We 're empowered it's a it's a, a, a you know form of empowering so I think that in that sense history can be really really valuable maybe maybe one of the other things that i I should say is that one of the themes of the book is how fear is twinned with hope so you know one argument is that and I think this is an argument that was particularly articulated after the second world war with the sort of nightmare of Holocaust. Is that um all the values that we cherish when we espouse something when we dream of a future when we have ideals we open ourselves up to the possibility that they may not be realized that they may be thwarted that they may be under attack from forces that don't want them to be realized and so fear is built into our spouse of these very positive values because we're worried that they are threatened in some sense and so some people would argue that that has been a negative thing because instead of espousing justice equality all these positive values. We start focusing on the things that are attacking them. And so we enter a negative politics where fear takes over from the espousal of these positive ideals. So there are ways in which that when we think about, you know, big things like freedom or justice, we immediately enter a a world where fear is important. And I think sort of understanding where that's come from, even in 20th century history, is sort of quite important.
0: That was robert peckham speaking to me ellie cawthorne robert's book fear an alternative history of the world is out now published by profile thanks for listening to the history extra podcast this podcast was produced by sam leal green